Well, we can let the little ones go if, if they choose. We're going to continue on. I'm going to read the last, the, the last couple of verses of chapter 11. Uh, as we flow into chapter 12, I think they flow. Uh, as I mentioned most weeks, we are in the midst of getting ready for the next pastor. Again, the search committee is uh, meeting in the parlor after the worship service. Uh, but as the search committee is examining candidates, or at least will be examining candidates, uh, we as a church are examining ourselves uh, because the church needs to be ready. And, and similarly, but far more profoundly, Jesus is getting his people ready for what's coming in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his sending his spirit into the church require of them a certain kind of preparation. He loves his disciples. Uh, He cares for them. He will love them till the end. Uh, And in that process, he is now discipling them. So the word discipleship looms large in the evangelical church. Uh, We are considering a discipleship committee uh, here at Carriage Lane to knit together uh, many of the various ministries of the church. Uh, I know a church up the road has uh, put a lot of resources uh, into a well-thought-out program of discipleship. So we all know the language of discipleship. Everyone pretty much agrees that it's a good and necessary thing, even if it's often lacking uh, in the contemporary church. So it seems a good idea to take note of the original discipleship of Jesus literally uh, teaching his disciples how they are to live in light of his person and his work, in light of who he is and in light of what he's doing and is set to do. Uh, Last week, uh, we noticed at the end of the passage, which I'll read in a second, uh, how the opposition is intensifying. Uh, This has an effect on the disciples as Jesus is opposed. Uh, They are opposed as the religious leaders uh, become murderous. Uh, the disciples' lives likewise are jeopardized. And just as the later letter that we were looking at uh, last year uh, or earlier this year uh, to the Hebrews, uh, the prospect of persecution uh, could lead one self-protectively to hedge one's identification with Jesus. I think that's the background uh, to what's going on in the passage. Now, remember, the context is the journey to Jerusalem. That's where we are in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus said so uh, twice in Gospel in, in chapter 9. He said, uh, I am about to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be crucified. Uh, and I'm going to be resurrected. Uh, and then in verse 51 of chapter 9, uh, Luke tells us that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So they're on their way to Jerusalem Jerusalem is the place where these things are going to happen. Uh, We saw back in the middle of chapter 11 that the crowds are increasing. And here, in verse 1 of chapter 12, uh, the crowd is numbered in the tens of thousands. Uh, Now, the ESV says many thousands. Uh, Some of the other translations are more literal in the translation of the Greek word, tens of thousands. Now, that's hard to imagine. It's hard to get your brain around that, that Jesus is on his way from Galilee uh, to Jerusalem. That's where his destiny is, and this crowd is huge. And uh, there is a sense of increased energy 
There's a sense of higher stakes. And in this setting, Jesus tells his disciples basically three things that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, He tells them to renounce hypocrisy. He tells them to fear God. And he tells them to confess him. Uh, So let's read this uh, passage together. I'm going to start in verse 53. Uh, As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the peoples had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you have more value. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Uh, Thus far, the reading of God's Word. This would Uh, warrant, I think, several sermons, but we're going to plow through it because a lot of it is very consistent. Uh, And if you had an ear, you were noticing how many times a future tense verb is being used, uh, talking about what is going to happen, what will happen. Uh, The the, uh, reflection is on what's coming at the judgment, not just what's coming in Jerusalem, but the way the judgment is going to impact their lives and how they can live in light of the coming judgment. Uh, So the first thing that he says is that they are to renounce hypocrisy. Uh, This was the beginning of that book that we did in Sunday school uh, several months ago, The Evangelical Pharisees. The first chapter in that book uh, was on this verse, uh, that Jesus told them, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, he's just had lunch with Pharisees. Remember that? Just had lunch with them, and during that lunch, he pointed out to them their folly. And their folly consisted in this, uh, that they were uh, looking good for others to see in order to get pats on the back, in order to get affirmation, but they had no regard for their internal lives, uh, which is is more important to God, is what God sees, and it's what God judges. And he warns his disciples here, interestingly, Uh, that they could incline in the same direction. He says, watch out, beware. The NIV says, be on your guard against. There's a certain urgency in his instruction, and you and I should not brush it aside quickly. 
Uh, Again, we could spend a lot of time talking simply about this one uh, instruction. You should not assume that you're not hypocritical. You should not sit there and say, well, you know, I can think a lot of hypocritical people. I, I hope they're listening to this. I hope they will pay attention. But I'm not hypocritical. Don't assume that. Jesus is saying, beware, be on the lookout for, pay close attention to. Uh, Neither should you content yourself that at least you're aware of your hypocrisy. Uh, You shouldn't say, well, I I know I'm a hypocrite, but at least I know it, Uh, whereas these other poor scoundrels sitting around me don't even know that they're hypocrites. Don't be content with that. When Jesus says, beware of hypocrisy, he's meaning get rid of it. I think a good way to describe what he's saying here, because we're so familiar with the word hypocrite, is that he's saying, stop pretending. Stop putting on a show, putting on a face for others to see, but rather pay attention and make sure that what is inside, the inside of the cup, aligns itself uh, with what people see. Take an honest look at your life. Invite someone else to help you. See if things line up. You say that you have faith in Jesus. You say that you believe. Are there any counterindicators to that? Or are there any places where someone could say, yeah, this is what you say, but this is what's happening over here, and those things don't line up? It needs very careful reflection. I remember uh, when I studied counseling that uh, our professor had a word that he kind of threw out in front of us that he kept pushing for all the time, and the word was integrity. And, uh, and he had a very specific definition of that word. Uh, he said integrity was the willingness and the ability to take into account all reality, everything that was true. And so on the one hand, you say that you believe this, but on the other hand, this is what you're doing. Those two things don't line up. And, of course, the, you know, the, the, the thing that we're talking about in counseling is identifying and getting rid of denial. We had T-shirts that said denial is not only a river in Egypt. You've seen that before. Uh, but this idea that I'm, I'm going to deny the reality of what's clearly taking place in my life because it doesn't match with my profession. Integrity would be to take those into account and, uh, and make sure that you can deal with or at least repent of and get rid of this counter indicator. Uh, to be a, a hypocrite is to be a fallen human being. Uh, it is not to be human because Jesus was human and he was not a hypocrite, uh, although he was tempted by such. But there is a natural disposition in every human being to hypocrisy. And everyone except Jesus has become a hypocrite to one degree or another. And, and as long as you are blind to your hypocrisy, there's no hope for you until you see it. And this is where you have to make a rigorous examination. This is what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. Beware, be on the lookout uh, for hypocrisy. And God will, in his mercy, if you ask him, send someone or something into your life to show you your hypocrisy. He's good in that way. If you will pray, Lord, send someone to me, send something into my life to show me where I'm merely pretending, where I'm merely playing the game, where I'm being a hypocrite, God is good, and he will provide 
a positive answer to that prayer. Uh, Secondly, I just want to say that being a hypocrite is simply forgetting that you're a sinner. You know, the, the cornerstone of our Christian profession, I think this is one way of putting it, is to say that we are simultaneously, at the same time, uh, both sinners and saved. Luther described this in Latin as simultaneously, simul justus et peccator. We are, at the same time, sinners in great need of grace. And uh, those who have been favored and justified and saved by that grace. And that happens at the same time. To be a hypocrite is to forget that. It's to put on airs, acting as though you were not among the company of those who need forgiveness. Yet one way to summarize the gospel is to say that a Christian is never anything more or anything less than a sinner saved by grace. Never anything more than a sinner and never anything less than saved by grace. So hypocrisy really is, if you're paying attention and digging into it, it's forgetting the gospel. It's forgetting, laying aside, not living according to the truth of the gospel. Uh, Paul's got a great description of this. The Apostle Paul, in Galatians chapter 2, he talks about this confrontation that he had uh, with Peter, uh, also an apostle, and he talks about how Peter had gone uh, to Galatia and uh, uh, or to Antioch, and and there had uh, forgotten the gospel. This is, let me just read you what he wrote. Uh, Paul says, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, I can't go off and unpack all that's happening in Galatians chapter 2. Simply that hypocrisy was on display and that Paul describes that hypocrisy as not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. That hypocrisy is to forget the gospel. Now, the rationale that Jesus provides here is that what's inside you will eventually be made known. Eventually, it will be made public. Sometimes that happens in life where you are exposed. But it will certainly happen at the judgment. And Jesus is saying, make sure you do not fear such such exposure. And I think it's worth noting that hypocrisy is likened here to yeast. And you know what yeast is like, you know what it's defined by, you know what it symbolizes in the Bible, that which permeates. Uh, You know, we could call it a contaminant that has the potential uh, to spread itself. And so the entire company of the disciples could be infected by this hypocrisy, that if there's a little bit of hypocrisy, it is bound to bloom into a lot of hypocrisy. So number one, Renounce hypocrisy. Stop pretending. Number two, he says that they should fear God. Now, it it actually goes both ways. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body. And then he says at the end, fear not, 
you're of more value than many sparrows. But essentially what he's saying, I will warn you whom to fear, fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, I'm hesitant to even preach this. I mean, of course, I get to a passage like this, as any minister would, and say, do I know anything of this fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord in the Scripture is a wonderful and glorious and daunting and intimidating thing that brings much to light. Uh, I dove in this week to a little book, maybe you've seen, called Rejoice with Trembling uh, by Michael Reeves, uh, same guy that wrote Evangelical Pharisees. Uh, It takes its title from Psalm 2, where the psalmist says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. And Reeves does a wonderful job in that book. It would be a great book for a small group study or for a Sunday school class. He points out uh, that the proper fear of the Lord intersects with loving God, with delighting in God, with being joyful in God, Uh, that the fear of the Lord really is the heart of holiness, and it is the proper response to God's mercy, that when God is merciful, that when he extends his mercy and you embrace that and and you drink of it, that the response is the fear of the Lord. He quotes Jeremiah 33. I hadn't paid a lot of attention to this passage, but what a great example. Uh, The Lord is promising to bless Israel as they repent. And this is what he says. This is verses 8 and 9 of Jeremiah 33. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Now that's a different kind of fear and trembling, isn't it, than what we're used to. Because of all the good, because of all the blessing, because of the grace, because of the mercy, they will fear and tremble. And the same thing is going on in this passage. He says, I tell you, fear him because he's taking such good care of you that he cares for you more than he cares for these sparrows and he cares, uh, and even the hairs on your head are all numbered. You're of much more value. God cares for you so well uh, that you should fear him. And the contrast is presented between fearing people and fearing God. You might put it worrying about what other people think and fearing God. There's a contrast between those things. And, and it's, again, an overflow from the previous because the Pharisees were well known as though those who worried about the opinions of other people, that they were very much committed to receiving the applause of other people, receiving the esteem of other people. They feared the opinions of others more than what God thought. And this was, you know, in some ways at the root of their malady, at the root of their hypocrisy. Now, once again, the judgment is in view. 
God has authority to cast into hell. It's not something we talk about very much. We probably know it, but we don't interact with it or engage with it. I think we need to be very clear every time we come to a passage like this to understand that God does not cast bad people into hell and welcome good people into heaven. You know, we understand that essentially in the gospel that God casts into hell the self-righteous. He casts into hell those who are seeking to save themselves by something that they can manufacture, whether it's good works or something else. They're looking for something else to save them besides God, and those are cast into hell. God saves those uh, who abandon such salvation strategies and entrust themselves only to him. We need to be very clear about that. If you're confused about that, you know, let me ask you to rethink it. God is not casting evil people into hell and saving those who are good. And so the Pharisees are in much greater jeopardy of hell than are the prostitutes and the tax collectors. That's a hard reality, but it's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. And uh, these who are planning to save themselves are the ones who are known as hypocrites, as pretenders, as those who hunger for the approval of other people. A few summers ago, I was, I told you I'd stop telling you motorcycle stories. This is not about a motorcycle. But I was a quart low on oil, and I pulled into a little shop in Roanoke, Virginia, and there was a young woman working behind the parts counter and uh, young women working at motorcycle shops are always, uh, they, they catch your eye. And I noticed that inside this woman's arm was a tattoo, and it said 10.28. And, uh, and that caught my eye because it's my wife's birthday. And I wonder if her birthday's the same as my wife's birthday. And, uh, and then as she was moving around getting my quart of oil, I noticed that what it actually said was Matthew 10.28. And I thought, well, I wonder what that is. What, I, I didn't know what Matthew 10.28 is. I should know that. Uh, got outside, looked it up on my phone, and it is a more succinct expression of what is being said here in verses 4 and 5. Matthew 10.28 says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Uh, that's a tattooable verse. That's better than, I think, some of the more commonplace verses that people choose to tattoo themselves with. Not that I favor tattoos, uh, but if you were going to have a tattoo, uh, to be reminded to fear God would probably be a good thing uh, for you to do. Lastly, Jesus says that they should confess him. Uh, As the opposition to Jesus is rising, It's becoming more risky to speak of him and be identified with him. Uh, This could certainly be said now in certain contexts. Uh, We know that there are places in the world where your life would be at risk if you acknowledge Jesus. And there are certain contexts, even in the United States, where maybe not life, but certainly reputation uh, would be at risk. Uh, For the disciples, this really functions as a direct instruction concerning what's going to face them Uh, the next 50 years of their lives after Jesus is ascended. I'm not going to talk about verse 10. Uh, It's a little bit too complicated. It would take too much time. 
Uh, I'd be glad to talk to you about it afterwards, as would any of the ministers or elders in the church, uh, deacons as well. Suffice it to say that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not a slip of the tongue, uh, but it's a life commitment. But the church has always put a premium on faithfulness in the face of opposition, especially when life is threatened. Uh, In the early church, it was actually assumed that if you were martyred for your faith, it was proof positive that you were on a hot uh, train to heaven, uh, straight into the presence of God. Uh, All three of these instructions melt into each other here. Don't pretend. Don't fear men. Confess Jesus. Acknowledge him before men. Don't be ashamed. To confess Jesus is not to defend the church and its foibles. The church makes lots of mistakes, and I I don't want to get in the business of defending the church. Uh, Neither is it to propound theological or uh, scientific or political or sociological positions, even when they're biblical. Uh, It is simply to acknowledge Christ as the Savior of sinners. That's what it means to acknowledge Christ. I think it's what the apostle does in 1 Timothy 1. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's to acknowledge Jesus. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I am the chief. I'm the main one. You might remember Luther's famous episode at the Diet of Worms in 1521. Uh, I think you do. Uh, He was grilled by church authorities in front of the emperor. This was kind of the one of the culminating events of his life, although it was very early on uh, in his career. He had been promised safe passage, but he had to uh, own up to the things that he had written uh, that were hostile uh, to the current teaching uh, in the church. Again, he had been promised safe passage, but that was often revoked, or at least it wasn't unusual for it to be revoked. So he really was taking his life in his hands. He could have been walking into his execution and, uh, and at this conference, uh, this diet, this meeting, uh, he was asked to identify books that he had written and was uh, commanded or asked if he would repudiate uh, the things that he had said, repudiate his errors. And you may remember that on that day, Luther, being full of courage, uh, took a take, step back and said, uh, give me a night to think about it. Uh, and he went home and thought about it, and he prayed about it, not home, but to his room, uh, thought about it, solicited the prayers of his friends, and the next day he famously stood firm. Uh, you probably have heard this. He said, I'm, unless I'm convinced by the clear teaching of Scripture and plain reason, I don't accept the authority of the Pope or councils because they have contradicted each other, but my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God, help me. Amen. Uh, Those are Luther's famous words. We remember, here I stand, 
I cannot do otherwise. Uh, but that was actually the climax of a longer speech. Uh, and in that speech, he did, in fact, distinguish between some of his rash language, said he'd be glad to recant that. Uh, he separated out some of his works in terms of the, um, the, the relative importance of what he had said. But in the end, as you can see, on the main theological uh, foundations of the gospel, he would not move off of those. Uh, but in that longer speech... Uh, he recounted examples from the Bible of God confounding the wise, and he said, I must walk in the fear of the Lord. He said, I say this not to chide, but because I cannot escape my duty. I have to walk in the fear of the Lord. I mean, he's fairly bringing what Jesus says here in this passage right into his life at the point where his life is in jeopardy, and at the point where it really counts, where everything is, uh, is being held in the balance. Now, maybe you or I will get a chance someday to be that clear. Maybe we'll get a chance one day to make that statement uh, to good effect. But we will not survive that trial unless we're ready. We need to start with the small things before we get to the big ones. We need in our day-to-day, tomorrow at work, tomorrow on the golf course, uh, tomorrow wherever you find yourself, uh, to stop pretending, to fear God, and to acknowledge or to profess Jesus in the small things. Uh, in hopes that the day will come uh, when you will stand firm. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, these instructions of Jesus are not easy. And it's so critical for us as we read your word, as we apprehend it, uh, that we distance ourselves from popular conceptions, popular misconceptions about Jesus only being uh, the lover of the poor and destitute. Uh, He's much more complex than that, Uh, yet in his complexity he's also very single-minded regarding your honor, regarding your holiness, uh, regarding uh, the the seriousness and the esteem in which you're to be held. Uh, So, Father, we've already prayed for forgiveness, so I don't want to do that again. But would you make us mindful? Would you put us in a place where we feel the need uh, to confess more regularly when we are uh, made aware of these things so that we can run to the cross and know the value of your mercy, the incredible substantial, overwhelming value of your mercy to the end that you would be feared. To the end that we would not fear human beings or the things that they say or can do, but that rather we would fear you and in the fear of you, uh, honor you. We ask it in Jesus' name.